Our scripture lesson this morning is from the prologue to John's gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Praise the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Camp. Good morning, everybody. Happy Fourth Advent. I found a new table in the building, and I'm very excited about it, because it can do this. And because all of that wax drips on my Bible, and it makes Jesus sad all through Advent. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to uh, John chapter 1. This morning, we're going to talk about light. Um, So throughout this Advent season, Advent being the four Sundays that begin the church year, uh, leading up to Christmas, which Christmas is what day? Is Is it Wednesday? How is that possible? And not just any Christmas, it's Christmas 2019, which is the last Christmas of this decade. And I feel like this decade just got started, so this is very confusing for me as it might be for some of you. Um, But all kinds of folks are going to mark this passage in time in different ways, and we are going to mark it in the way we mark it every year, which is moving toward the moment when we remember that God shows up in this unique way in Christ. Uh, Now, this season of Advent, we've been looking throughout uh, these Sundays at sort of the big symbols of Advent and Christmas. So uh, greenery, you can see it all around here, was week one. And then we talked about gift-giving, which there was a whole bunch of gifts under this tree in our partnership with Friends Indeed. Then uh, we talked about feasting, 
which I've done plenty of in the last uh, two weeks. One of the ways I stay well, how many folks have been able to stay well all through December and November? Let's see three of those hands go up. Everybody and their mom is sick right now. Um, but eating really good food is one of the ways that I've stayed well because it makes me so happy. And happiness is known to be an antibiotic for all things. Uh, and now today we're going to talk about light. Light, I've been like sitting with this for the week and longer than the week. And I'm realizing that it is such a big, like, um, fluid, very hard to grasp concept. It's like the sort of thing where like fish in water aren't exactly aware that they're in water. We live in a world suffused with light and it's very hard to distinguish what the light is around us because it is sort of everything that we are seeing. Okay, so we're going to start today with the history of light. We're going to move through the text, through the Bible, just three spots I want to show you in here. And then I want to talk a little bit about why our place in history is so unique and makes it very, very difficult to hear the words of Scripture written in a time before the light bulb was invented. And why that makes it really strange to think about light and darkness in the way that the writers of Scripture would have thought about it. But we're going to start at the beginning. You heard Luke's, uh, you heard uh, John's gospel reading. Uh, the gospel of John, the prologue in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, is hearkening back to, do you know? Genesis 1, exactly, yes. Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was tovu vavohu, was formless and void, and hoshek, darkness, covered the face of the home of the deep. And a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, and this speech goes forth, let there be or, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, separated the light from the darkness, called the light day, called the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Any civilization has to come up with a story for how things got started. And one of the things everyone is interested in is how light was found, how it was discovered, how it showed up in creation. The Greeks have their own myth of the gods who smuggle light down into humanity and get in a bunch of trouble for doing so. In our story, light is a gift from God. Now, the story sort of takes a left turn at some point and moves into shadow spaces as the story starts to fall apart with Adam and Eve and the fruit they're not supposed to eat, and then they move east of Eden, and the story continues to disintegrate over time, and you find yourself in what we would call like deep, deep darkness. And the prophets finding themselves in the deepest of darkness after time after time of calamity, they talk about the sort of renewal of light. That somehow God is going to move back into creation in a decisive way and light everything back up. So you get to John's gospel and you hear this language reverberating out again. I won't reread the whole passage, but it's full of this understanding of light. Phos in the Greek. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. So the beginning of our story is the light of all creation is gifted from God in which we see and know everything. And then it gets obscured, it gets darkened, we move into shadow spaces, and then Jesus shows up. That's sort of the embodiment of light and understanding. And all of a sudden this light moves back into creation. It kind of suffuses out. Now if you go to the end of the scriptures, so we'll just go all the way to the very end, Revelation 20. One. This is verse 22. I saw no temple in the city. This is the vision of the kingdom of heaven painted at the very end of our scripture. 
I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut, and there will be no night there. This theme becomes a bit redundant in this passage. The next chapter, it says it again. There will be no more night. They will have no need for lamps or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's just sort of this known reality that we are much bigger fans of the light than we are of the darkness. If you have kids, you know that this is true. If you're an adult who sees sleep with a nightlight, you know that this is true. Darkness is really, really creepy. However, we very rarely have to think about darkness anymore because we have all of these twinkle lights and bulb lights and sort of artificial lighting that keeps our world always in daytime. That is not how things used to be. They used to be really, really creepy when it would get to be nighttime because that's when you get eaten by a bear. Very rarely do people get eaten by bears in the daytime. This is science. Always happens in the nighttime. Also, the nighttime is the time of vampires, witches, and werewolves. All of these things are like both kind of myth and kind of true because we are just scared of things that happen in the dark. So we figured out a way to banish the darkness. It's a new invention. For a long time, humanity's primal fear was the unknown. And the unknown was sort of understood in two ways. The sea, the deep, the tahome, because that stuff is real dark at night especially. And then nighttime, when all of a sudden the sun stopped shining. I mean, it used to be so dark, for instance, that the stars on a clear night would cast shadows on the ground. I have never been in that kind of darkness where the only light available is the light of the world. Light had a kind of physicality to it. So like, there's some lights on this tree, but I can do this number and nothing's burning me. I could like, could lick it, could bite it. I wouldn't bite it. That might do something. But it ha- doesn't have a physical presence to me in the same way that like this does. Where if I, you know, like that starts to hurt a little bit. Um, light has this sort of physical relationship with reality. So what does it mean to live in a world that is always bright? And not bright like understood, full of knowledge, but bright just like always neon and glowing. That's the world that we live in today. The way that I've thought about light all through this week and for the last year or so, and if you happen to have a penchant for photography, this might be your story as well, is through uh, the lens of a camera. Do y'all remember this is a, do y'all know that this is a camera? It takes pictures um, without the aid of a phone. It's crazy. Um, I remember my parents had a, a Canon, what is it, AE-1, sort of classic point-and-shoot 35-millimeter film camera. This is also a film camera from, I think, Russia in, like, the 40s. So whenever you take the picture, the shutter is so loud that it, like, shakes the camera. Is it poof? I want to talk to you a little bit about photography because photography is itself sort of the study of, of light. Really all it is is, well, the word itself means the left side of photo or phos is from light and the right side of the word, uh, graph is like to write. So photography quite literally means to write with light. It's really, it's a really beautiful term. Old, old cameras were called camera obscuras. 
So this is a camera. The word camera itself means like a, a box or a vault or a room. And obscura means dark. So the original cameras were just dark rooms that you would like poke a hole through and then you would see a reverse image projected on the back. At some point they developed film, photosensitive like layer, and they would put that on the back wall and it would basically drink in the light. It would sort of absorb the light and you would get a picture. That's how photography came about. So I want to talk with you about, let me show you real quick. Here's light, literally painted. This is with uh, Michael Mann during arts camp this summer. This is a long exposure where somebody had a flashlight and when they opened the shutter, right? So it's open, they drew with the light and then it closed and then that was what was recorded. It's a really good picture of photography. So I've been sitting with a set of cameras for the last like two years or so thinking about photography as a craft itself. And I would say that any good like art, medium or craft, any well-formed life, it doesn't have to be like a visual arts field, but any life dedicated to a vocation, a craft, a way of understanding the world will illuminate different concepts in other fields. And so light is one of these concepts, these ideas that it has really helped me to think of it through the lens of a camera. So this is Joshua Tree at coming close to what's called the golden hour. There's like two golden hours every day at dusk and at dawn when the sun comes up just enough to sort of wash light over everything but not directly and it creates a natural what we would call a light box where there are no really harsh shadows it's really beautiful glow we're almost at the golden hour here in joshua tree this is coming off of just this street right here on marengo i usually take a walk at least once a day when i'm working with my camera and just look around and see what i see and because of the way the sun sets uh, on one side of the city, it always washes this really pink orange glow across buildings. And so this is a building just down the street on green, I think. And I took a series of pictures of it with this one wall glowing this kind of pink and orange. And then this is looking the other direction from our garage. So you can see the way that the sun is, is moving around. What I love about going, I, I take a set of pictures every day and then at night usually I upload them to whatever screen I have and then I go back and I look through them. And part of what I'm seeing uh, is the way that light has sort of formed itself in the image, the way that it is this kind of physical substance inside of this image reality. There's something called an exposure triangle. So I'm going to nerd out with you for a few minutes about photography. It's going to be super fun. Um, here's the thing. Somebody pull out their phone and just hold it up for me. That took way too short a time. I mean, there are cops who can't get to their guns as fast as y'all just got to y'all's phones. <laughs> but yeah, if you hold it up, that's where most of you are interacting with, with your photography is on your phone, which is it's really smart device. It does almost all of what I'm about to explain to you inside like a microchip. It's doing all of the work for you. But coming out of that sort of automatic mode and moving into a manual understanding gets at what's happening with this machine and with light. And what's happening with this machine, I think, can teach us about the way that we are supposed to interact with the light in the world that God is giving us. So there's something called an exposure triangle, and it's three distinct things happening inside of a camera that are all in balance that make the picture well exposed. This picture is actually not very well exposed, is it, Kim? It's like way underexposed. Uh, I wanted the sky, but to get the sky, anything else that's somewhat in shadows just gets uh, underexposed in all black. Now, I, Corey will tell you I love pictures that are underexposed, so that may be a feature, not a bug for me. Um, the three things are aperture, 
shutter speed, and ISO. I'll explain what those are and why I think they matter. Uh, the first thing is aperture. So uh, in most cameras, now you don't really know where it is, but in old cameras it would have likely been a dial on your lens. The reason it was a dial on your lens is because aperture controls sort of how much light is coming into your film. Uh, it works a lot like your, your pupil when it dilates. So if it's really, really dark, what happens in like a really dark room to your eyes? They get real, real big. The reason they get real, real big is so that you can take in as much light as possible. Now, if you walked outside right now, what would happen to your eyes? Super bright outside. Your pupil gets really, really small. So, right, here's sort of like a, a resting rate pupil, and you can barely see it. Because there's so much light in this room that the light from that projector over to this screen is washed out by layers and layers of stained glass light. It's like the people who built this building didn't realize that projectors were going to be a thing a hundred years later. This is sort of a resting eye. You can't see this, but this is like super tight in. And then this is if you're sitting in a dark room. So aperture is the way this is controlled. If you're sitting in a lot of darkness, you're going to open that thing all the way up. It's an, uh, called like an F. I don't really even know what F stands for. But the lower the number, the bigger the pupil is on the lens. And it's letting in a ton of light. Now, here's the thing about aperture. If you get a really, really wide aperture, the focus is like really, really narrow. So if I'm sitting here taking a picture of Jason, oh, let me get my camera. I won't take a picture of you. Because also pictures steal your soul. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. But like if you took a picture of him with a really wide aperture, uh, Cynthia would not be in focus because it's taking in a ton of light, but it has a really narrow field of view. If I had a ton of light in here, if I was taking a picture in an outdoor scene uh, or if I was changing a few other things, I could keep everything in focus. This is the way aperture works. OK, let's keep moving because we have a lot more to cover. Shutter speed is number two in the triangle of exposure. Shutter speed is super easy to understand. It's just how long the shutter is open on a camera. So think about uh, a camera having like a door to a dark room. You open that door and you're like, you can light, you can come in for just a little bit. And then you shut the door and it's dark again. Right? So the, the quicker you open and shut the door, the less light gets into the room or into the camera. If you were wanting to take a picture of something and have everything frozen and still, you're going to use a really fast shutter speed. But you can't do that if it's really dark, because you need a lot, a lot of light. So like, for instance, here's me taking a picture at like one one thousandth of a second. You can see I have frozen this balloon in time. But if I were to take this same picture at like a tenth of a second, you would get a better sense that this balloon is in fact moving toward my face at a decent velocity and clip. Because, right, all of this light is moving around the frame. If you were to open a shutter and kind of wiggle the camera around, you would get these cool light trails. So shutter speed is the other way that you control light. How much light is going to get in here based on how long I'm going to open my eyes and then close them again? The last piece is something called ISO. This is the one that I still don't fully understand. But in film cameras, you would have a... You remember you would, like, buy a roll of film at the store? And you could control aperture and shutter speed on your camera, but you could not control the ISO or the film. That was set by whatever film you bought at Sammy's camera. In here is something called uh, Porta 400. Um, 
It's really good for outdoor photography. It's not very good for indoor photography because it is not super light sensitive. Uh, ISO basically is how sensitive your film or your sensor is to the light coming in. Really high ISO means that it will take that light in really quickly and it will sort of see it all. A really sh- like low ISO is a really clean picture, but you need a ton of light to see. Um, we used to have a camera, an old Canon point and shoot that Corey would always say, my wife, you would take like product shots with it. And you said, this camera, it drinks the light. I loved that image she would use it, like it would drink the light in. And so you get these really beautiful, beautiful pictures. That's ISO. Now here's why all of this might in fact matter for Advent and for John 1 and God being the light of the world. One of the things that learning how to take pictures has done for me is it's taught me how to see better in the dark. And that in fact is the kind of light we are talking about at Advent. It's not the light of like neon signs. It's not Las Vegas lights. It's not spotlights. It's a very, very subtle, gentle kind of light. A light that exists with a ton of shadows and darkness. And so learning how cameras work, how cameras see in the dark has helped me understand what it means to try to see the light of Christ during this Advent season. Because in fact, we are competing to see light in a world suffused with like deep, deep darkness. Okay. Advent season asks us to see the world as it actually is, to claim the world and all of its complexity for God, and to name the world as the realm of God made known in Christ. And to do that means we become experts at, like, Corey's old camera, drinking in the light. Here are the things that I've learned just from those three little exposure triangles. Here's a picture of my dad's hand, like, really late at night, and it's shot with a really, really wide aperture. You can't really see anything else but his hand, and you can barely see his hand. Everything else is blurred away. To see the light in this picture means to focus pretty intently on one thing and nothing else. To be okay without seeing everything else, but seeing that one thing with some kind of clarity. This is what happens in the gospel stories of Jesus, where there are just a few people who make it to the manger. There are just a few people who get the picture that this baby has something to do with the renewal of all things. But it takes a certain kind of focus and dedication to see it. It's not accidental. It's like that older guy, Simeon who'd been in the temple praying for the restoration of Israel over and over and over again. And whenever Jesus' parents bring him into the temple after his birth, he's like, God, Jesus, the Messiah is here. But he's been looking for the light for quite a while. So when light shows up, like he is ready. This picture is a 60-second exposure in the house where we stayed in Joshua Tree. So I set the camera on a tripod, I opened the shutter, and then for 60 seconds it stayed open and took in as much light as it could take in. You can't see in this picture, but I like ran into the frame, I sat on a bench for 60 seconds still, and then I was in the picture, which was brilliant. Uh, another way that we see the light in this season of shadows is we, we look patiently. We may have to wait. Folks who are obsessed with quick faith, 
they will look for flashy signs. And if the way that God breaks into this world is with more subtlety, then only those who are patient and can wait long periods of time with their eyes open might in fact see the light that's coming into the world. Shutter speed. This is last week at the carol service in the evening, just outside. So really dark, not well lit, but I cranked the ISO all the way up so that I could expose the picture, made the thing more sensitive to the light. A lot of what we do on Sunday mornings is turn up your sensitivity to the light all the way up so that when you move out into the world, you can intuit, you can discern the presence of God working with the shadows. That is a big piece of what we do when we worship, right? When Pastor Leslie is leading us in singing, it is to tune our ears and our hearts and our eyes, our vision, all of us, to discern the presence of God in our midst. How can we make you more sensitive to the light? So here it is. You're going to have to look at less and you're going to have to focus more. You're going to have to look longer and become attentive to the light. Last week we had our candlelight carol service in here. And uh, 6 o'clock, so it was decently dark outside. This place was lit uh, with all kinds of affection from you all and from our staff. And there's this moment, Charlie's on the spotlight up in the balcony, and the kids are, are processing in for the nativity. And I was sitting right here with one of my cameras, and I, uh, Alice, you don't remember this picture. Um, and so I would, like, turn around here, and I'd look down the aisle as each of the kids would be coming down, and I would take pictures of them as they were walking. This is a picture of Natalie and Jason's two boys, um, Bennett and Asher, walking down as shepherds. And the spotlight's kind of washing in behind them. The whole night was just like really lovely, just sort of gorgeous celebration of a world illuminated by the love of Christ. Um, at the end of the night, though, uh, Pastor Lindsay and I were chatting uh, with the staff, and she said um, she had observed that we were in here cleaning up, like, you know, blow out the candles. The lights are all down. All of this stuff is in darkness. This is like one of the few rooms in the world that still feels like night when the lights are off. It's super duper creepy. Um, But she goes, I can't believe how warm it felt 30 minutes ago or an hour ago when it was full. And now it just feels cold and empty. And I've sat with that through this week because it, it reminded me uh, that the light present in this space is not the twinkle lights, not the candles. It's in fact you who are keepers of the light. These two boys walking down illuminated were just this like one visual reminder of what all of you are and were in that space and are even right now. The presence of another in your life looking at you with affection or looking at you with light illuminates the world. And, And at least for that hour in the carol service, it was like really, really, really Bright. One of my favorite novels is by Cormac McCarthy, uh, his book The Road. Anybody read The Road? Right, Rini? It's a great book. It's really, really brutal, though, like super visceral, super dark, 
The whole book takes place in shadow. It's this father and this son who are on this road just sort of surviving. Um, if there is a time that feels like Advent Shadowlands in the Valley of the Shadow of Death, it's, it's this book. Um, but at different points in the novel, the son falls into despair. Um, at one point, the father says uh, about his son, he says, if God has spoken, it sounds like my son or God has not spoken at all. So there's this sense that the two of them are kind of kindling a fire between each other as they move through all of this despair. And there comes a point where the son's going to have to figure out what it means to live without the father because the world is dangerous. And uh, the dad says to the son, this, this refrain that's continually showed up in the, in the novel, says, you have to carry the fire. First of all, this is a book that has zero light in it almost. There's just, there's like this, just a spark. And so the dad says, you have to carry the fire. And the son says, I don't know how to do that. Dad says, yes, you do. The son says, is the fire real? Is it real? Dad says, yeah, it is. Where is it? I don't know. I don't know where it is. It reminds me a lot and is likely written in the same nature of like the questions that the children ask at uh, the Seder dinner at Passover. What does all of this mean? Where is it? I don't know what it is. And the dad says this line. Um, yes, you do. It's inside you. And it always was there because I can see it. We think about light as moderns, as the light through that window pouring in to this space, and we drink it in through our eyes. Or for those of us whose sight is uh, hindered in some kind of way, true light you can feel. Like even if you close your eyes and you turn this way, it is a very different sensation than if you turn this way toward the way the light is streaming in. But it is a thing that we receive. But for ancient folks, light worked in another way. So did darkness. It wasn't just something that you received. It was something that you projected. So the way that you look out onto the world can either look out onto the world in light, in grace, in love, or you can look out onto the world with uh, falsehood and with violence and with shadows. Those are the options. And so this father in the book, The Road, is telling the son, like, you carry the light. You and I have to keep this spark alive. There's something about us when we are well-ordered and well-intentioned, settled in who God has made us to be, that we ourselves are illuminated. Now, we would say that we are illuminated in a way that God is present with us. We are not generators of the light as much as we are recipients of and then sharers of but even Genesis says we are created in the image of the divine. There is this old story um, the rabbis tell about the fall. When Adam and Eve eat what they're not supposed to eat, and they feel ashamed, and they realize that they're naked. And, and the story says that God knits for them clothes out of skin. Remember this part in the story, and clothes them uh, to cover up their shame? And so uh, the rabbis, they gather around this story, and they say, what were these garments made of? And uh, one of their answers is, these are garments of light that 
God realizing that humanity was about to be cast out into true darkness, right? So the garden is this place where the entire world sort of glows from within and without with the kind of pureness of who God is and what God's is, which is everything, to an obscuring and a, and a shadow. And so the gift that God gives humanity on the way into the shadow lands is garments of light. The gift of fire, the gift of illumination. It's a really lovely, generous reading of the story. Here's what it's meant to see the world in delight for me. And I know this is true for some of you too. And in this last story, I'm going to ask you if you would settle yourself in it, see yourself in it, and figure out what it means to go step out into the world with the eyes of Christ. So much of the time we think about religion as a thing that we look at, as something that we behold and then we grasp onto. That God is something that we can sort of put in our pocket. Christ is something we can wear around our neck as a possession. But what I've come to learn about faith is it is a way that we see reality. It is the means by which we interact with this creation, which is very different Right, So religion then becomes the means for how we are in the world, not the ends. Jesus says to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. So go out and let your light shine. For our country, we love to say that we are a shining city on a hill. That's actually not the phrase that was originally used. The way we understood our own country is that we were a city on a hill, which meant we would be seen. And hopefully we would be the kind of city that shined, but we do not always. So here's the story. I have uh, this friend who, um, for all kinds of reasons, has had just like a really brutal life in the valleys of shadows of death, like just the worst. And uh, because of that and because the folks who were sort of the initiators of that violence were churchy people, uh, he is just very disinterested in anything having to do with religion. Uh, but somehow, by the grace of God, uh, he and I have become friends. And he knows I'm a pastor. I didn't, like, trick him and say I'm a public speaker, like I sometimes do. Um, which I always do when I'm on a plane. Because, man, if you tell somebody you're a pastor on a plane, it just never stops. It doesn't matter how many earphones you have in. They want to ask you all the questions. Um, but this guy knows I'm a pastor. We just... We, here's what our friendship has meant from my direction. I've had one... I had like one intention I've held out in front of me. And it has simply been to see him as I imagine God sees him. To, to As much as I can to put on the eyes of Christ. Now to do this, I have to truly understand how Christ sees me or you or the world. Now, it's like part of my job to sharpen my understanding of the gaze of the divine. It's just like I have to have a good understanding of what that is. Otherwise, I could do all kinds of untold damage to all of you. Like the way that God looks at you is with so much anger and disappointment. And I hope that you don't wither under that stare of the supernatural. And in fact, we put up like a big icon staring down at you in anger just so you don't ever forget. Um, No. I thought, what is kind, like, what does it look, feel like to look at someone with just unmitigated kindness? And just keep, hold that gaze, hold that stare for a long, long time. So I've been doing that with him. 
And he's allowed it, right? His generosity is to allow himself to be seen, which is a gift. If someone gives you the gift of their allowing you to, to like see them, to apprehend them, um, it is a gift. So don't squander it. And please don't look at them with anything other than eyes full of light. But he told me this story last week about a time when he was sitting on his back porch just recently. And he goes, I don't know what's happening in my life. I was like, I kind of know what's happening. Um, he goes, I don't know what's happening. I was on my porch the other day. And I was sitting down. He goes, all of a sudden, I just had this peace wash through me that I had no explanation for. Because it's not, like, it's, it's, it was all the way in my bones. Like I just knew everything's going to be okay eventually. I'm trying not to freak out right now. Because I'm like, oh, he has allowed himself to be seen, not just by me, but by the source. And I don't use this language with him, and he wouldn't use it for himself. But he said, then, like, these birds flew over, right, Cynthia? And he had this moment of just, like, flood of emotions and, and crying. And this, he didn't really know all of what it was. It was just a, a washing over. But he said this. He said, uh, and I felt like I was seen, like someone was looking at me. Something was seeing me. He goes, not in a creepy way, but just like a held way. This is what it means to be keepers of the light. It doesn't mean that the world isn't going to be full of shadows. Because goodness gracious, even in this Advent season, especially in this Advent season, the world is full of plenty of shadows. But it's to be the kind of people who can see light in the darkness. Who can intuit sparks. Who can nurture them. Who can look out into your brother and sister with love and affection. If they can't see it, then you might be the only one who can see it. And you keep looking at the world in that way until it can see it for itself. Until it says, I felt seen and I was not afraid. We put all of these lights up all through December as a reminder that the darkness doesn't win. But that the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overtaken it. It is chasing, right? It is after the light. It's just not up to the task. And you're the ones who God has entrusted as bearers of the light, of the flame. And together, we can cast out the shadows. Together, we can enlighten one another to the love that is present. Christmas is almost here, my friends. And it doesn't flash on the scene with pomp and circumstance. It's just like a candle lights in the manger. And it spreads from there into Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And in the end of our story, there is no need for candles and there is no need for string lights. There is no need for spotlights or fluorescents or LEDs or lanterns. No sun or moon or stars are necessary because the light will come from within creation, as God is finally with God's people. Emmanuel, God with us. And so our prayer in this season is for Jesus to come in a decisive way. And my answer to that prayer is Christ is present in each and every one of you, 
if you would wake up to the call. Would you pray with me? God, light of our life, illuminate our path. When we see ourselves in the mirror, God, would we see ourselves with the kindness and loving gaze that you have for us? Heal the wounds of our broken vision where we have allowed shadows to enter into our gaze. Forgive us our cynicism when we only ever see the shadow side of life. Bring us back to joy. Present in the faint but distinct glow of your arrival. Make us ready to receive, sensitive to the light that is breaking out all through creation. Make us ready to nurture this light, this warmth. It's an audacious task you've given us, but you've not left us alone. So thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.